portion of Shlach tells the story of what is perhaps the single greatest collective failure of leadership in the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu sends 12 men to scout, to spy on the land of Eretz Yisrael. The men were leaders, princes of their tribes, people of distinction, yet 10 of them come back with a demoralizing report. They tell the Jewish people, we came to the land, it flows with milk and honey. They show off its delicious and splendid fruits, but the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. We cannot go up against the people living there because they are stronger than we are. The land where we went to, the land which we went to spy out, these men say, is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there are of great height, giants. We appear to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we appear to them. Wow. Kalev, one of the 12 scouts, tries to calm the people. He says, we can do it. Yochel nuchel, oloi nali, a rash noise. But ten of them, the majority says, it can't be done. And so the people lose heart. As the Torah describes in the portion of Shlach, the entire community raises their voice and shouts. The entire community weeps an entire night. The Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel, complain against Moshe and Aaron, and they say, if only we could have died in the land of Egypt, if only we would have died in the desert, why would Hashem bring us to this land to be defeated and murdered by the sword? Why should our wife and children become the spoils? Let's go back to Egypt. We all know the continuation of the story Hashem gets very upset. How long will this people provoke me? How much longer will they not believe in me after all the signs? I have performed so many miracles in their midst. Hashem says, He tells Moses, I will strike them with a plague and annihilate them. Moses, Moshe, begins to plead for compassion. And what does he say? He says, V'shamu Mitzrayim, the Egyptians are going to hear that you brought out this nation with great power. And now you kill, V'himata, you kill this entire nation like one person. The nations, all the nations who have heard God about your reputation are going to say, God lacked the ability to bring the nation into the land which he has promised to them and swore to them. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the desert. That's how they're going to interpret the event. God, you're incompetent, Halili, you're incapable. Forgive the iniquity of the nation in accordance with your abundant kindness, just as you have carried them from Egypt till now. And Hashem says, Salachti kidvarecha. I have forgiven them in accordance with your words. Moses pleaded for compassion. God forgives, but he insists that none of the adults of this generation, none of the men between 20 and 60, with the sole exception, none of the men from 20 and older, with the sole exception of the two dissenting spies, 
Yehoshua and Kalev, Joshua and Kalev, none of them would live to enter the land. The people would stay in the wilderness for 40 years, and there everybody who's 20 and older will perish. Only the children and the women will eventually inherit what might have been theirs had they only had faith. What's the end of the story? The Torah continues... Moses related all of these words to the children of of the children of Israel. They grieved, they mourned greatly. They arose early in the morning. They ascend to the mountaintop saying, We're ready to go up to the place which God promised us. And we know that we have sinned. At this point, Moshe says, no. We have to now remain in the desert. Don't go up, he says because God is not among you. And if you go up, you'll be beaten down by your enemies. The Amalekites are up there. The Canaanites are up there. And you will fall by the sword. Stay. What disturbs you about the story? When you hear the story, you read the story, and it's it's always worthwhile. I'll encourage this. To, it's always worthwhile to read and learn the portion of the Torah inside the text, Chumash, and at least Rashi. I mean, other commentators would also be great, but Rashi is the basic commentary on Chumash, and each week, I would suggest to all of you, even the busy ones among us, to take a few minutes every day and learn that section of the day. Every portion is divided into seven sections. On Sunday, you learn from Rishon to Sheni, on Monday from Sheni to Shlishi, on Tuesday from Shlishi to Revi, and on Shabbos from Shvi. It's an endeavor that takes between five minutes and 15 minutes. You have today English translations of all forms and types, or Hebrew trans explanations, or Yiddish ones, whatever works for you. You have Russian, and you have French, and you have Italian, and you have Portuguese. I don't know if you have, we have Mandarin yet. But I would suggest that very strongly that way throughout the year, you learned the whole Chumash. After a few years, you know the whole Chumash. You mastered it, at least on one level. What is disturbing about this story? Throughout the whole Torah, God forgives. (laughs) That's how the Tanakh works. Particularly after prayer and repentance. Humans sin. They accept responsibility. They express remorse and resolve. God forgives. It's fact, it's one of the axioms of Judaism, and it's one of the pervading themes of the whole of Tanakh. The Rambam has a beautiful phrase based on the Yerushalmi, Nothing stands in the path of repentance. In this story, something else happens. In this story, the Jews repent, they experience remorse, they are ready to change their behavior. They tell Moshe we are ready to go to the place where God wants us to go because we have sinned. Why doesn't Hashem accept the repentance? Never before or after this will it happen. It's even more disturbing. It's not like God says, I can't forgive them. He forgives. He tells Moshe, Salachti I have forgiven them in accordance with your words. If he forgives them, why does he still penalize them to remain in the wilderness for 40 years? If I forgive you, why would I punish you? If the Jews repented earnestly, and they did, we can see that they were ready to go up to the land. So this was just, this was not just big talk. 
big talkers, it was sincere. And God says, I forgive them. So why don't we just go back to square one? <laughs> Let's start over again, okay? And we'll enter the promised land. Isn't that what forgiveness means by definition? I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to accept the atonement and the forgiveness and create a new beautiful future. There's something equally disturbing, maybe even more disturbing in this story. When God tells Moses he's going to annihilate the entire nation, Moshe, Moses, argues that this will cause the Egyptians to claim that Hashem is incapable of bringing the people into the land. God is incompetent. He simply can't do it. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were Moshe, what would be your primary argument why not to annihilate the people? Could Moshe not have found any other rationale to influence God, so to speak, not to annihilate an entire nation of some two, three million people, men, women, and children, save the fact that it won't look good for the Egyptians? Does this disturb you? I mean, when I read it every year, I wonder, you know, we sometimes talk about, I don't know, maybe it's a bad example, we sometimes talk about people, that their entire calculation of why to do something or not to do something is how it's going to look for others. What are others going to think? Now, that's part of our calculations. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's an important one. You know, you don't have to flaunt everything. Yaakov tells his children, Lama tisro, you don't have to show off. You don't have to, you have more money than other people. You're more affluent. Zaya Mensch, be humble, be normal. So we all appreciate that. It's, it's, it's part of human sensitivity. It's actually part of kindness. But to live based on what this one is going to say about me and this one is going to say about me is one of the most paralyzing ways of living. If you need something, if your children need something, if your loved ones need something, the most important consideration is what's the right thing to do, not what this yachna or this one is going to say or think. Especially when we're talking about an issue of life and death, I would expect Moshe to have said, these are your creatures. You created them. These are your children. This is the nation that you have taken out of Egypt and you chose them as your people forever. Have compassion for them. You love them. These are your children. Don't kill them. In fact, it's exactly what he said at a previous disaster. Not long before this, the nation created a golden calf and God wanted to annihilate them. He told Moshe, Herif me many vashmidim, leave me alone and I'm going to annihilate them. That happened just one year earlier. Literally one year earlier, not a very long time ago. And what does Moshe say? This is back in Exodus in Parshish Kisisa. Moshe, Moshe says, Lama Hashem yechra apcha ba'amecha sha'itzeisa why do you allow your anger to be kindled against your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand? That's Exodus chapter 32, Parshas Kisisa. Afterwards, Moshe also raises the issue that it will desecrate God's name among the nations. What is more? If you were Moshe, what else would you tell God? 
he might have told God, listen, these people have been in Egypt for 210 years. Can you blame them for panicking? Can you blame them for their paralyzing fear? Can you blame them for not believing that they can enter into the land of Canaan that's filled with giants when they are still traumatized from years and years of oppression and slavery and genocide and watching their children being taken from them and plunged into the Nile Delta? Moshe could have put the blame on the spies who demoralized the nation. Yet in reality, his only argument why to spare the lives of all of the Jewish people is the reputation of God among the Egyptians. I want to tell you something. I have found that most children, or many children, when they read these stories initially, they ask these questions. Because they're really good questions. But because many of us don't have answers, so we dismiss these questions. And then when we get older, we stop asking these questions. These most basic, glaring powerful, disturbing questions. We stop asking because it's like, it's just the way it is, you know? So forgive me for revisiting these important questions when you read the story because God, Hashem wants us to know these stories. He recorded it in the Torah and everything in the Torah is a lesson. It's not just plain history that happened thousands of years ago. Very few stories are recorded from the 40 years in the wilderness. They were there 40 years. We have a few big stories and each of them is a timeless lesson in life. So I saw, I was learning yesterday, the Svas Emes on Parsha Shlach. Svas Emes, I learned with you a few times, is a Hasidic work that was written by the second Rebbe of Ger. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter. He passed away in 1905, and he succeeded the first Rebbe of Ger, the Chidushi Harim, Rabbi Itchameyer, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir. Chidushi Harim passed away in 1866, Svasemis was still very young, so for a few years, the community was led by Reb Henech of Alexander. They called him the Koyen Hagadol, or Reb Henech of Alexander, for a few years. But then afterwards, uh, the Svasemis assumed leadership as the second Ger Rebbe, if you wish, the third, if you count Reb Henech, in the interim between the Chidusharim and the Svasemis. Again, his name was Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Leib, Alter's last name. And he has this work, Svasemis. And I was looking through his insights on Parsha Shlach, and as usual, they're very deep and beautiful and concise and cryptic and difficult to understand. But I saw a theme that he mentions a few times. The first time is in his first essay on Shlach, Parsha Shlach Tafresh Lamad Aleph, which means it comes from 1871. And then he repeats this theme a few times throughout Parsha Shlach. And I want to share with you an insight that he says. Now, I have to say that I wouldn't have understood it when I read it here. However, I now come a few generations later to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and at a Fabrengen, Shabbos Parsha Shlach, 1974, that's Tovshin Lamed in the in the Jewish calendar, the Lubavitcher Rebbe asked the above questions, and he offered the following explanation. I'm going to elaborate a little bit the way I understood it, and then I'll also quote you when I went to the Sfasemas, where I saw it in the Sfasemas. Just a little introduction for context, and this is important not just for this week, but I think for all of our classes and learning together. When somebody lacks a real understanding of God 
Judaism and Torah, we can get very, very wrong impressions. And I see it all the time in my interactions with people, students, women and men of different communities and different demographics, my travels around the world before Corona, and especially through emails, correspondence, hearing what's on people's minds, and my many conversations with people, we see this all the time. People have this instinctive, very, very harsh and negative, and I would say traumatized feeling. It's almost like they see the story as follows. The Jewish people rebel yet once again against Almighty. God gets upset. As somebody once told me, he's always losing his temper. He's always angry. The fuses blow. God says, I had enough. He's furious. He's on a warpath. I will kill them all. This happens again and again, and it happens again in Shlach. And suddenly Moshe, the Savior, intervenes. And he's like, hey God, it's not such a good idea. The Egyptians are going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to say you simply don't know how to do it. You can't take them out of the land and bring them into the land of Canaan. You're afraid. You're also limited. So God, you have no choice. Do not do this because they're going to tell you. They're all going to say God is simply incapable of delivering his promise and therefore he had to kill them in the desert, which was his nice way of saying I can't do it. So God says, okay, you know what? Plan B, I'll kill them over 40 years. Friends, this represents a misconstrued understanding of Yiddishkeit. We have to go back always to the baseline. God created the world for what? For when? He conceived you and me and the entire universe and the entire planet in love. God created the world just so that we can get, and gives us, gives us challenges and the ability to be traumatized and the ability to experience toxicities just to punish us. God loves you infinitely. That's the baseline. Eternally, unconditionally. When Torah speaks of punishments, it's never to be understood as we sometimes appreciate it or understand it as I'm going to get you back. Think about a loving mother or a loving father who's really a worked out person because educating children is about educating yourself first. A father and a mother who love their children unconditionally and eternally. God, maybe you don't want to give him credit to be better than them, but he's not worse than them. God doesn't lose it. He doesn't throw a temper tantrum. Somebody once told me they read Chumash and there's temper tantrums from the Lord. We throw temper tantrums when we feel out of control. (laughs) We have to grow up and revisit a lot of these paradigms, a lot of these primitive concepts that have become embedded in us. God is your greatest fan. (laughs) He created you. (laughs) He invested his essence in you. He creates you every moment. He's your greatest ally. He's your best friend. He's your greatest advocate. He wants you to be happy, content, successful. He wants you to be maximized. He wants you to live life to the fullest and suck the marrow out of life in this world and in the next world. Punishments in the Torah are never to be understood as just simple revenge. You got me, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. I'll get even with you. Or even showing me who's boss. 
or it's an explosion of, of wrath. I have no impulse control. Even a normal functioning worked out parent doesn't take revenge from their children, even if the children did something that was wrong and inappropriate. No parent who's worked out tries to get even. I'm going to show you who's boss. I'm stronger than you. I'm going to take vengeance. We all get angry, yes. We all have moments when we surrender to our lower angels. We have moments when we lose it. But people who are worked out and disciplined and, and, and live by values and, and by an internal, an internal compass that guides them, we don't allow our wrath to overwhelm us and dictate our behavior, even when I'm feeling upset, even when I'm losing it, even when I'm feeling angry. And if I do, I apologize. I learn from my mistakes for the next time. This is the basic ethical behavior of, of, of good and nurturing parents. Many of you work on this every single day. God doesn't love us any less than human, mortal, and limited, and moody parents. So let's study this story with a little more depth. The spies come back and say, the people who inhabit the land are mighty. The cities are huge and fortified. There are offsprings of giants. The Amalekites dwell in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Yavusim, the Amorites, the Amorim dwell in the mountainous regions. The Canaanites dwell on the coast and alongside the Jordan. This is all part of the report of the spies. The land we pass through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants. The people we saw in it are men of great stature and prowess. We saw giants. We saw the sons of Amalek, descendants from the giants. In our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. Were they lying? Were they exaggerating? Were they dramatizing? No. They weren't lying. In fact, the Ramban and other commentators even want to know what was their sin. You asked them to go give you a report. They gave you a report. You don't like the report? You kill the messenger? Great question. And there are different answers given for this. They weren't lying. Everything they said was 100% accurate. And that's the point. It was indeed an impossible task, an unfeasible goal. It was an impractical plan. It was an unachievable dream. That's what the Svasemis and the Lubavitcher Rebbe both explained. It was an impossible task. They were giants. They were powerful. We're, we've been in slavery for many years. There's no way we're going to do this. So how could have it happened? So how could have this dream been materialized? Only one way. Faith. Amuna. If they can truly put their full trust in their infinite creator, unwaveringly, with full conviction and absolute dedication, then the dream would become possible because God is the sole master of the universe, so the impossible can become possible, the unfeasible can become feasible, the impractical can become practical. Conversely, if they lack the faith, if they lack the confidence, indeed, it's unattainable. 
We know today, I mentioned this pretty often, in quantum mechanics, reality is not fixed. It's multi-layered. It's complex. We talk about probabilities, not fixed models. What I see is what I get, literally. In quantum physics, it's not a cliche. Here's the question. Could the Jews enter and conquer the land? The answer depends on them. If they believed they could, they were right. If they believed they could not, they were also right. You know, let's apply this to more to other areas of life, because it's true in so many areas of life. Those who say we cannot do it are right. Those who say we can are also right. If you lack confidence, you will lose. If you have confidence, solid, justified confidence based on preparation and past performance, I'm not talking about hallucination, you will win. I saw a number of years ago in Psychology Today an experiment that was conducted by a Harvest, by a Harvard University psychologist, Dr. Robert Rosenthal. It was a group of students and teachers living in Jerusalem, and the experiment went as follows. A group of physical education teachers and students were randomly chosen and randomly divided into three groups. In the first group, the teachers were told that previous testing indicated that all the students had an average ability in athletics and an average potential. And the teachers were told, go and train them. The second group of teachers were told something very different. That the students in their group, based on previous testing, exhibited an unusually high potential for excellence. For excellence in athletics. And then they were sent to train them. And then there was a third group of teachers. They were told that their group of students had exhibited, based on previous testing, an extremely low potential for athletic training. Now go and train them. This was all fabricated. The students were chosen randomly. No group of the three groups exhibited any more potential than any other group. The teachers were given several weeks to work with their student athletes. At the end of the training period, the results were as follows. All those students who had been randomly identified as being rather average in ability performed about average on the tests. The students who were randomly identified as being above average performed above average. All the students who were randomly identified as below the average performed below the average by a considerable margin. What the teachers thought their students' ability was and what the students themselves thought their ability was based on what they heard from their teachers went a long way towards deciding how well they performed athletically. And it basically demonstrates a truth, I think, that resonates with so many of us. Students in classrooms, workers in shops or offices, patients in therapy, children and families, and all of us in our own life stories do better when the people who are mentoring us, guiding us, helping us, see within us tremendous potential, expect us to do well, when we ourselves see ourselves as winners, not as losers. A person's self-esteem, self-image, 
what I think about myself and what I think I'm capable of is an, it's not the only factor, but it's a very crucial factor in what becomes of me, what becomes of you. And this has to do with deep attitudes and sometimes these paradigms are hindered and really defined by my traumas, by my self-image. Completely not my fault. It could be inherited from generations and epigenetics. It could be nature, it could be nurture, it could be so many other factors. But I have to be able to identify what are those voices that may be undermining my success, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously. So let's now go back to God and Moshe, Hashem and Moshe. What are the first words of God to Moshe? How much longer will they not believe in me after all the signs and miracles that I have performed in their midst? This was not a personal insult. Read these words. And again, it's so much of my paradigms, my unconscious paradigms that dictate how I read these words. I can read these words as God is insulted. Like, I really need your validation. How much longer will you not believe me? I split seas. I turn water into blood. I inundate a country with frogs. I know how to bring an overwhelming darkness for three days, six days. You still can't believe me? Mana from heaven is not enough. How much more do I have to show for you to get that I'm a great God? No. This was not a personal insult to God. It's like, I'm insulted. <laughs> Could you believe in me? Could you validate me? Could you just tell me that I'm good, that I'm big, that I'm great, that I'm infinite? God is saying something much more psychologically important. Since, notwithstanding all that the Jewish people have seen and experienced, the exodus from Egypt... A superpower was brought to its knees. Ten supernatural plagues. Splitting of the sea. Mana from heaven. Miriam's well. Clouds of glory. Revelation at Sinai. The successful defeat of Amalek. All of these stories were not hearsay. They were not on Wikipedia. They were not in books. The nation experienced them on their own flesh. If they still cannot take God's presence seriously. If they're still stuck in the narrow mentality that the superficial physical reality is the sum total of existence, if their posture has not been elevated to become a ladder that is grounded on the earth, but its top reaches heaven. In the Jewish imagination, who are you? Who am I? My posture ought to be straightened out and realize that my head touches heaven and there's a seamless flow that comes through my body, through my soul, all the way down to earth. But if I can't see that anymore, and I reduce my existence to a very small, petty reality, if all of these stories, God says, cannot transform them from within, then they won't be able to conquer the land. They won't allow themselves to be open to a higher and deeper way of operating. Had the Jews internalized their experiences of the past year, they would have felt in their bones in a visceral way that if God sent them on this mission, it was possible, it was practical, it was real, it was feasible, it was doable, it was attainable. And so it would have been. If you believe you can, you are right. 
what pained God so deeply was that they succumbed to a sense of helplessness and fear, and this robbed them from the ability to actually achieve the job. Their fear would become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they would lack the, lack the power to enter and conquer the promised land. I want to read now a few words from the Svasemis, and after the class we'll also post it on the source sheets on theyeshiva.net if you want to see it inside. I'm going to read. Svasemes Shlach Tofrish Lamed Aleph, 1871. It's true that from their mind's eye, the spies felt that they do not have the capacity to enter the land. They were not lying. They were speaking their truth. And indeed, that's exactly why they did not go in. They really felt they can't. I can't. But if they would have taken their own perspective and surrendered it to God's perspective, strong words, if I can develop my own emunah, what does emunah mean? Emunah means that I see myself as larger than my brain is telling me I am. My brain is telling me I can't, I can't, I'm stuck, I'm paralyzed. I don't know how to mother, I don't know how to father, I don't know how to be a husband, I don't know how to be a wife, I don't know how to be a child, I don't know how to be a brother, I don't know how to be a sister, I don't know how to be a success story. Any one of you relates to this? I can't, and you have good proof. And you know what? You have good stories to back you up. And you know what? You have good trauma to continue to share these stories with you constantly. I can't, and I can't, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm paralyzed, and I'm dead. And look at what happened yesterday, and look at my emotions, and look at my mistakes, and look at my upbringing, and look at this, and look at that. And I know that you can draw up a list of 250 mistakes that all reflect these horrible patterns in my life. I can't go into the promised land. I will be eaten up immediately. He says that's why they didn't go in. But if I could align my perspective with God's perspective, but if I can align, if I could surrender and say, you know what, maybe my brain, or at least my amygdala, is really controlled by a lot of trauma. Maybe at this moment, I cannot see it work out. But can I believe? Can I believe? What does belief mean? Belief doesn't mean you're naive and stupid. Believe means you realize that reality transcends trauma. Belief means that my reality transcends my need to wrap my brain around everything and make it perfectly fit in to the present confinements of my finite ways of perceiving reality. Did that just make sense? Okay, I can't repeat it, but it came out. I hope it was good. You get it? That's what faith means. And when it doesn't mean, let me just fantasize and live in a illusory world of hallucinations and dreams and fantasies where things are completely, don't have to be practical. No, Amun is the most practical reality. Don't reduce God 
to your brain's capabilities. Don't reduce all of reality. Don't reduce yourself to the way you see yourself at the moment. You know who you are? You're a Sula Mutzavartsa. You're a ladder whose head begins in heaven. And the bottom of the ladder reaches the ground. You're a chelik kami mal mamish. No joke. You're literally a piece of God. No, you don't know me. Rabbi Waiwa, you don't know me. <laughs> I know. I don't know you, but God knows you. He created you. <laughs> I don't know you. I don't have to know you. The problem is you don't know you. You have to know yourself. They were slaves. We can't go in. They're right. They're right. It was a very difficult task. But if they would have aligned their perspectives, that itself would turn them into different people who are not defined by those natural confinements. We have a precedent for this. We remember the story of Avram Avinu, he couldn't have children. He was in for him and Sarah, they were infertile. And Hashem tells him, this is back in, uh, in Bereshis, Tasvav, Genesis 15. God tells Avram Avinu, go out of your need to be an astrologist, because all the astrologists were saying that based on your zodiac sign, Abraham cannot have a child. Sarah cannot have a child. It says, God took him outside and he pointed to the stars. So Chazal said, why did he take him outside? What was wrong staying in the tent? Go out. Go out of your box. Go out of your own perceptions about what you can and what you can't. I can't be successful. I can't have children. Or even if I have children, I cannot have an amazing relationship with them. I cannot have a blissful marriage. I cannot be powerful. I cannot be gorgeous. I cannot be influential. I cannot be an ambassador of love, light, hope, goodness, kindness. My life is a story of misery. It's a Greek tragedy. Who am I? I can't. Go out. Get your posture straightened out. Physically, well, as well, that would be a good idea if you can. But I'm talking about emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Can you see yourself as a channel? You are the interlacing link between heaven and earth. You're the channel of infinity into finiteness. And what does it say about Avram afterwards? Vehemin. He had a muna. And everything changes. Everything changes. That's the three lines in the Svasamas. So now let's go to the next step. If this is the case, if I believe I can't, I can't. I simply can't. If so, God argues to Moses, why have them go and die a violent death in war? Let them die peacefully in their sleep, in their meditation, in their trance, in the desert. And remember, this world doesn't end life. They will continue to live in the spiritual bliss of heaven. This was not a punishment the way we usually understand punishment. God says, I'm going to destroy them. God does never how to punish you, ever. 
Why would he want to punish you? He loves you. <laughs> he wants to help us, not punish us. This was a natural consequence of their state of consciousness in this state of mind. When you can only see one dimension of reality and you're not open to anything else, you cannot experience life in any other way. The trajectory that I imagine becomes a predictable, self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how my neural pathways are working. And therefore, this is what reality gives back to me. So even after God forgives the people and the Jews want to repent, Hashem doesn't change His plans. Why? They're staying in the wilderness is not a punishment for sin. If it's a punishment for sin, they repented. God forgives. It's a consequence of their inner state of mind. Sometimes I'm incapable of entering the land. In fact, for me, it's going to be a dismal failure. Lacking the faith and lacking the trust in themselves as divine ambassadors, as divine messengers, not subjected to the laws of nature. They would approach the conquest from a natural perspective, and naturally they were not up for this enormous task. Moshe understood this. God is not trying to kill out the people as revenge. Simply, they have completed whatever they're capable of achieving in this world. There's nowhere for them to go at this point. They can't enter the land. They're going to die violently. So they completed their task. So God says, let them continue their lives blissfully in heaven. Moshe's argument was something else. The death of the people will cause the greatest desecration of God's name. God is pained by the lack of Jewish faith. Yet this act will cause the greatest absence of faith in God. The Egyptians and other nations will conclude that Hashem is an ept. So they can't die in one shot. Over 40 years in the desert, their children will enter into the land. And by the way, that's why Moshe uses the word Vayishchatim Bamidbar. God spoke God, they, 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 the Egyptians will say, God slaughtered them in the desert. <laughs> What's this expression? God slaughtered them in the desert. And as I said before, if this is really the issue, God is ready to kill out the entire people. So then that should be the alarming cry of Moshe. How could you kill an entire people? Come on, especially when they're repenting. We'll get them to repent. <laughs> the word Vayishchatem is a very unique word. He slaughtered them in the Midbar. Maybe killed them, slain them, Vayishchatem. What's the idea of Shechita? When we slaughter an animal, the Gemara has an expression in Chul and Daflamid, Ein v'shachat elo moshach. The word shacha doesn't mean to kill, it means to draw. And that's why shechita is done through the drawing of the knife back and forth. Spiritually what it means is, what justifies shechita is that I'm drawing moshach. Shachat means to draw. I'm drawing the animal from the realm of animal life into the realm of human life, which will allow it to become part of the divine oneness. That's why it's very important when a person eats to realize that what justifies 
and what allows me to eat this food, whether it's fish, whether it's chicken, whether it's meat, even whether it's a vegetable or a fruit that I detached from its source of life on the tree, is that I am elevating the animal, elevating the fish, elevating the food to the realm of the human by me elevating myself to the realm of the divine. Vayishchatim b'amidbar is not to destroy them in the desert, to elevate them. They finish their task here. It's going to be a miserable existence if they continue to go there and they die in a violent war. Let them be elevated to heavenly bliss. Hashem ultimately responds to Moshe and he lets the Jews live with Moshe and Aaron for another 40 years. Now, I think it's very clear how powerful the application of this is in each of our lives. You know, each of us was given his or her her corner of the world. I live in my shtetl, you live in your shtetl. We each have our bodies, our souls, our minds. We have our home, our family, our workplace. Everyone has their environment. They live in your circumstances. And it was given to us to transform it into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. A space that's saturated with truth, with truth, authenticity, earnestness, genuineness. A place that becomes filled with meaning, with goodness, with holiness, with beauty, with love. To make our spaces in life a conduit for for divine oneness, for divine infinity. At times we feel stuck in the quagmire and the circumstances inside of us or around us. Each of us has a domain in life that has to be conquered, a terrain that needs to be transformed into holy land. It begins with my brain. Each of us has our nesioinus, my trials, my tribulations, my insecurities, my fear, my trauma that I have to confront, that I have to deal with. My brain, my body keeps the score and I have to confront it. Each of us has those things that I have to deal with within myself and sometimes with the reflections of myself and the people around me. Each of us is given a land to conquer, a body and a soul to make ours and to bring out the best in it. Turn it into Eretz HaKodesh, a holy land. As we look around, we often become discouraged or despondent or paralyzed. Sometimes the task is too great. Sometimes I'm just getting headaches thinking about it, or I feel overwhelmed, I feel incapable. The odds are against me, and there's so much self-blame and self-loathing, or other people accusing me of doing the wrong thing. And I say, I, I can't be this happy person radiating joy to others and to myself without being a hypocrite. The other day, somebody shared with me that they are a leader in their community, and they speak a lot for their community, and they always have to, you know, put up this face of of confidence and joy and clarity and conviction, like, I got it together, and, and Judaism is so beautiful. And this person is saying, and then I go home, and inside, I feel like such a liar and such a hypocrite and such a loser. It's all falling apart inside of me, but of course... I give off this impression of, of, of invincibility and I got it all together. It's really hard for people. It's like, who is the real me? You know, it's part of the imposter syndrome, right? I'm stealing everybody else's information and making it mine. It's not even me. It's not who I am. 
These are thoughts that all of us have in our own way. And you know what? The more spiritual among you have this in a much more acute way. Less sensitive in a way it's easier. The more sensitive you like feel every, every iota of dishonesty and deception and disalignment and it kills you. <laughs> so welcome to the club. This is exactly the struggle of the spies. You know, you tell yourself, I can never become this real wholesome person. I can never enjoy a real powerful marriage. I can never create a really healthy family with all of my trauma and my spouse's trauma. Can I ever build magnificent relationships with my siblings, with my children, with my grandchildren, with my parents? I have too many issues. Can I ever overcome my social phobia? What am I supposed to do with my mental illness? What am I supposed to do with my chemical imbalances? What am I supposed to do with my mood disorders? What am I supposed to do with my personality challenges? What am I supposed to do with things that happened to me in my youth? Can I really overcome these fears? Me? I could lose weight? I'm talking about me. I can build that career. I can create a new path. I can discover real meaning in my life. I can find my vocation and calling. I'm just full of problems, let's put it simply. Some of us need to battle all these forms of fear, temptation. And what about my addictions? And what about my shame? There's always the voice of Woody Allen. <laughs> There's always the, you can always count on Woody Allen to describe certain realities. And he once said, confidence is what you have before you understand the problem. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Confidence is what you have before you understand the problem. And because some of us are so good at understanding the problem, there goes the confidence. As somebody once said, if you would have only understood, Rabbi, my situation, you would have known that I'm doomed. Somebody once said, I recently had a double bypass surgery. As they wheel you in, the doctor always gives you a last look. You know that look? that look of confidence to make you feel good. And I always say to every doctor, if I don't make it, I'll never know it. <laughs> this is a line I once read. But here is the secret. Here is the secret of shlach. And maybe one of the great insights in life. Stop taking things personally. See yourself as a divine ambassador. God has sent you each one of these realities in your life with the mission and the purpose of transforming your life into a holy land, into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. You have all the strength, resources, wisdom, talent, creativity to accomplish it. You are enough. You have everything you need because you were not sold. You were sent. Back to my Yosef, the Yosef class. You were not sold, you were sent. You're not a victim. You're not a mistake. You're not a random mutation. An infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity. You were sent by the Rebbeinu Shalolam with the capabilities and the potential to transform the darkness you were sent into or the challenges you were sent into into light. But it all depends on your perspective. If you see yourself as a divine messenger then the natural obstacles, perceived or even real, melt away 
in the presence of the one who sent you and entrusted you with this mission because these obstacles are also his. They're not divorced from him. But for this, I can't take things personal because then I get stuck in my insecurities. My son said this to me, my daughter said this to me, this one said this, this one said that. Don't get stuck in ego. Don't get stuck in insecurity. Don't get stuck in narcissism. We have to see ourselves as messengers, as emissaries. Again, straighten out your posture. The head reaches heaven and the feet touch the ground. That's the dream of Jacob. During his first journey from the land of Israel into exile, he's going to build a family. And one day, 20 years later, come back. Your child is show giving you an attitude. Your boss is giving you an attitude. Someone else is giving you an attitude. Don't let it become personal. It's not him against me, she against me, me against them. Then I become small, I become helpless. I get angry, I get neurotic, I become petty, I become obsessive. My ego takes over, my trauma takes over. God has sent me into this place. He has given me these circumstances. He has given me these children. He is giving me this body, this mind, this soul, this history, this past, present, and future in order for me to bring light, infinite light into this place, to extract opportunities, to discover the meaning right here and to transform this terrain of my life into a land flowing with milk and honey. See yourself as a humble servant and channel, a transparent channel of an infinite God in whose presence... There are no barriers, no darkness, and no impossibilities. And then you will notice insanely powerful and positive changes. To quote General Montgomery, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a bit longer. Thank you very much and have a wonderful week. We'll take some questions. Question number one. Why did Moshe then tell the Jewish people that God is not with you? The people wanted to go back into Eretz Yisrael. Moshe said, God is not with them. But if they were ready to go back, doesn't it mean that they were ready? Of course the answer is, and this the Rambam explained in the Guide to the Perplexed, which is a very similar idea. He says that because they were slaves for so many years, they really didn't have it inside of them. And 40 years in the desert turned them into warriors and an independent, powerful people who can take responsibility for their future and build a nation. That's what the Rambam writes in his Guide to the Perplexed, Meir Nebuchim. It's a similar idea that we have, one we have been exploring. The point is, when they heard the decree and they were broken and they were tormented, they said, let's go. But it was not, apparently, they were still not emotionally ready. You spoke about those of us who as adults stop asking questions. I just want to say, I never tire of the questions. And as an adult, I have even more questions. <laughs> Aren't we in the same situation today? We need this type of amuna. Good stuff. I'm with you. Have we internalized this lesson? So much Judaism, I feel, is living for some of us, so much Judaism is living from a place of fear. Sometimes it seems that we have not internalized this message at all. What do you think? Why would someone who is fa- falling apart pretend that they're doing amazingly well to the world? 
Why can't they be less black and white and more gray? Can't we just get real? <laughs> I am left speechless. I am left speechless by this class. That this is the power of MS, the power of truth. Of truth. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And not just being here physically, but also emotionally. I have to listen to this again. Many true ideas, but a lot to incorporate and digest in my personal life. For transformation from my insight to occur, it's a task. But I do bless you and God bless you for your commitment to help us all learn, grow, live, and become that channel. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, beautiful feedback and comments. Next question. Ooh, I see 17 questions on the yeshiva.net. <laughs> okay. I am married. I am married. I appreciate all of your classes, including the recent series that you have been doing for people who are divorced. Even though I'm happily married, the validation... The empathy is extremely powerful. What I get out of this class is never to be a victim and never to wallow in victimhood because that is coming from the Yetzirah. Yes, if that's what you got out of the class, that's good stuff. Regards from Beitar. We're listening to you in Beitar. That means a lot. Thank you very much. I don't understand. There's a basic principle of democracy that we go by the majority and not the minority. That's also the law in the Torah. Yet we see here that the overwhelming majority of the spies said not to go in. So why don't we follow the majority? What does this mean? This means, great question, this means that sometimes the minority is right and the majority is wrong. You have to, we follow the majority, let's say, of Besdin. You have 71 sages, all of them are completely dedicated to the truth and brilliant scholars and motivated to find out the truth. And each of them has a perspective. So we take a vote, we follow the majority. But if Hashem tells me to go into Eretz Yisrael, then I don't follow the majority, then you follow the truth. The question of majority and minority is only when the truth is not clear. You understand what I'm saying? Let me ask you a question. When you have the United Nations voting to condemn Israel instead of Hamas. So you also follow the majority. Learn from Nachshon, Pinchas. Jews are a minority in the world. And Shemre Teiru Mitzvahs are a minority among Jews. Sometimes the minority has the truth because that's what Hashem says. What about in a case where the halacha says the person is wrong? Then even if the majority believes that way, it's still wrong. It's still wrong. I still think the punishment was too great for the sin. Listen to the class again, and I think it will become clear that this was not punishment in the regular sense of the word. Next question. The spies gave a factually correct report. That is true. The problem was that God never asked them to give the conclusion to go in or not to go in. He just asked, Moshe asked for a report about the land and maybe the easiest way of conquering it, not 
to conclude that we can't go in. Yes, that's another explanation that's brought and a very important one. Why does God care about what the Egyptians will think? Good question. Great question. The answer is, because are you following the Mashiach classes? If you found the Mashiach classes, we've been learning, we did this Sunday the fourth, the fourth uh, class in the series of Rambam, the laws of kings and Mashiach, Rambam Hilchis Malachim. And we explained there at length what the Rambam says that Mashiach is going to repair the whole world. All the religions and all the tribes and all the cultures and all the nations are going to become united. So it's very important. The world is not a mistake. What do we say in the davening of Rosh Hashanah? V'yeda kol po'el kiyata piyaltoi, v'yovin kol yitzur kiyata yitzarte, v'yoymar kol ha'shen ha'shama va'apoi, ha'shem eleke Yisrael melech, u'malchusoi ba'koyl mosholo, v'simlech ato ha'shem eleke nilavadecha, al kol ma'asach. What do I care? That every single person who was created and every creature that was formed and everything that has a soul in its nostrils, including a rhinoceros and a hippopotamus, including a bee and a tree, should declare God's oneness. That's essential to the purpose of creation. Yet we do care what the Egyptians are going to say. The righteous people always argue with God not to wipe us out. Avram argues for Zdaim. Moshe argues many times to save us. Noyach didn't argue before the flood. Why not? Ooh, good question. And the sages, in fact, say that this was his flaw, that he didn't argue before the flood. Is your class the basis of the Tzamach Tzedek's words, tracht gut gut, think good and it will be good, meaning that our thoughts affect our reality? Yes. Yes, and in fact, one of the women who's here with us told me that one of my classes on that air, on that theme about joy, what was it called? Uh, um, something about happiness or joy uh, changed her entire life because I told them the story about the, the Alter Rebbe telling the Tzamech Tzedek when he was davening and he was depressed. Moments before he passed away, he told his grandson that it says in Zohar Tetzava that life is a mirror. And the reflection we express comes back to us. So he said, when a person is in a state of positivity, it creates an energy of positivity in the world. Are you saying that God gave us all the trauma and that's why it's not real and we could penetrate through it and we can transform it? I'm saying that God sent us into all the places we end up in to be able to transform it and bring light there, yeah. I want to suggest for people to watch one of your classes on the yeshiva.net on Shlach. It's called All About the Love. And you explained it that the spies didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael because they knew that Moshe is going to die and they wanted to stay in the desert so they would be able to continue living with Moshe. Yes, that is a beautiful interpretation by a man named Rabbi Shmuel Vital, the son of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal, and you can watch it in the Parsha Shlach on the yeshiva.net. It's a, it's, a, it's a video called All About the Love. You always talk about people who have low self-image, low self-esteem, those of us who suffer from trauma. Why don't you talk about the opposite? There are many people with insecurities, I know, but there are also people who have inflated egos, 
They think they're God's gift to mankind. They have unrealistic ideas about their capabilities. They think that what they say is true and they know everything about everybody. The proper approach is a balanced one. You're not that great and you're not that pathetic. You're somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Okay, point well taken. Thank you. Point well taken. (laughs) You're not that great and you're not that pathetic. Okay, I like that. Maybe we put that on our refrigerator. You're not that great and you're not that pathetic. You're not the greatest loser who ever lived and you're not the greatest winner who ever lived, right? Almost as good as Woody Allen's line. Okay, any other questions? So I'm going to wish you all, if you guys want to unmute yourself and say something on Zoom, it's fine. You have that ability, I think. And in the meantime, I'm going to wish everybody a beautiful day and an inspiring week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.